Well, good morning, New Day. I was waiting for the light there, all right? Good morning. Good to see you guys. So glad you're here to join us for the continuation of our current teaching series called Christ the King, where we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. And what we're doing today is we're actually beginning a series within a series. Big picture, we're studying the gospel of Matthew, but today we begin a section of scripture that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which spans from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And this is a teaching of Jesus uh, on the subject of salvation. Now, there's a lot of different topics within chapters 5, 6, and 7, but all of the different topics, they all relate back to the topic of salvation. And so what we're going to do in this series, within a series, is we're going to take one week on each of these various teachings um, within that section of Scripture. And here's the section we're covering today. Today we're going to cover Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and the teaching today of Jesus is a teaching on happiness. In other words, that's what's going on in our text today. King Jesus is teaching us about how to be happy. Now, there's a lot of diverging views concerning how one finds true happiness, isn't there? I mean, there's the world's way and there's God's way. And the world that we live in says happiness is found in things. If you accumulate things and and do things and stockpile things, and, and if you have things, like that is where happiness is at. And there was an Old Testament character named Solomon who tried the world's approach of finding happiness for many years. And we read about his approach in the book of 1 Kings. Solomon accumulated vast amounts of silver and gold and jewels, and he amassed for himself fleets of ships, and he filled many stables with the finest horses that could be found. He had hundreds of wives who were the most beautiful women from many different lands. He ate the best foods prepared by the best cooks in whichever of his magnificent palaces he felt like in Uh, felt like eating in that day, and uh, he had many, so he had choices. He was acclaimed throughout the world for his wisdom, his power, and his wealth. So by the standard of happiness that the world has, Solomon should have just been walking around gleaming with a smile uh, every second that he was awake. But far from that, Even though he was so great and so blessed by earthly standards, far from being happy, Solomon concluded that his life was purposeless and empty. In his own words, we read this, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2, here's his testimony about his life. Here's how he opens his uh, biography, okay? The book of Ecclesiastes, his biography, he says this, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And here, of course, he's speaking to the meaninglessness and purposelessness and unhappiness that characterized his life. Well, if we fast forward 900 years after Solomon, a man named Jesus of Nazareth was born. Someone who had wisdom greater than that of Solomon. 
And what Jesus taught was really a rebuke to the way in which Solomon lived. Jesus came teaching that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, we all have a spiritual void in our heart that cannot be filled with material things. Things cannot make us truly happy, satisfied. They can't provide the meaning and purpose in this life that truly makes us happy. Now, as thankful as I am that Jesus here defines for us uh, very articulately and clearly uh, where happiness is not found, that doesn't really tell us where it is found. All right? But fortunately, Luke chapter 12, verse 15 is not the only place that Jesus taught on happiness. He also teaches on happiness in the text that we're studying today, which again is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. In these verses, Jesus teaches on eight different beatitudes. Now, the word beatitude, it's simply Latin for a state of happiness. And so here Jesus shares the eight different components of living a truly happy life. Now we're going to get to each of the eight beatitudes and uh, this will be fun. I once preached an eight-week series on verses 1 to 12. Today we're going to cover all 12 verses in about 40 minutes. So this should be fun, okay? Uh, there's a lot to go over and I'm going to get to that in just a second. But here's the deal. Before we do, I want to give you the setting of our text. And the setting of our text is found in verses 1 to 2. So let's take a look. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. I want to talk for just a moment about the crowds that accompanied the disciples uh, to go listen to Jesus' teaching. Last week we learned of Jesus that because of his many healing miracles, his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And you'll see on the map that the Roman province of Syria included all the land of Israel, but then also it included land beyond Israel. And the Bible teaches that great throngs of people came to Jesus from Galilee and, and came to Jesus from the Decapolis and came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And in fact, throughout all of Judea and people even came to Jesus from beyond the Jordan, which is a reference to the region of Perea. And what we read about in verse 1, the crowds coming to Jesus along with Jesus' disciples to hear Jesus teach, uh, it's the crowds referred to in last week's passage, the people that came to him from all throughout the land of Israel and beyond. Here's a picture, in fact, I took when I was in Israel of the location uh, of where Jesus taught verses 1 to 12 as well as the entire Sermon on the Mount. Here we are on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see here, it slopes down creating a hill or a mountain as it goes down towards the water. And this is a space that even to this day can easily accommodate thousands and thousands of people. So when we read about the massive hordes of people that came out to Jesus uh, to, to follow him with his healing and to follow him in his teaching, we see that this location could easily, even to this day, easily accommodate such huge crowds. And so friends, that is the, the setting. They came to him, these crowds, and Jesus taught them his beatitudes, the keys to finding true fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness 
in this life. And today we're going to go through each of the eight Beatitudes. All right, here we go. Beatitude number one is this. Jesus says, in essence, happy are the humble. Happy are the humble. And we see this in verse three, where Jesus says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what you need to know for all eight Beatitudes. The word blessed simply means happy. Some translations will literally just say happy because the word blessed means happy. And Jesus says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the deal. Here, Jesus teaches that happiness comes when we humbly acknowledge our spiritual poverty. And that's what we're dealing with here. He doesn't say happy are the poor. He says happy are the poor in spirit. So what we're dealing with is poverty of spirit, spiritual poverty, not material poverty. Now, to help us understand what spiritual poverty is, we can go ahead and look to what material poverty is. We all know what it means to be materially poor. It means we have nothing with which to purchase the things that we need. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that we are spiritually poor, having nothing with which to purchase the salvation we all so desperately need. Many people make the mistake of thinking that good deeds are the currency of heaven and that they can exchange their good deeds for eternal life. But friends, good deeds are not the currency of heaven. Good deeds play an important role in the life of every Christian, but with that said, they have no purchasing power. It's like this. Let's pretend that after church, you head to the gas station to fill up your car at $87 per gallon. And when you're done and the bill is $400 for one tank of gas... Maybe you didn't even fill it up all the way, and it's still $400, okay? Uh, when you go ahead and do that, let's pretend that you offer them some garbage that you found in, in between the seats of your car in exchange for the gasoline. Is that going to work? No, of course not. It'd be ridiculous to think that your trash has value. Well, guess what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says of our good deeds? He basically refers to them as garbage, not meaning that they're not important, just meaning that they have no value in terms of being able to purchase our salvation. So if we're looking for our good deeds to purchase our salvation, we're the opposite of happy. We're miserable because we're still uh, damned eternally in our sins. But we become happy when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty. When we acknowledge that we have nothing of value with which to offer God in exchange for our salvation, we become happy when we do this because it causes us to begin looking in faith to the one and the only one who can purchase our salvation for us. And friends, that's Jesus Christ. You see, the currency of heaven is not good deeds. The currency of heaven is the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice. And that's what Jesus is, the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because he was perfect and willingly went to that cross to shed his blood, to be our substitute, taking upon himself the punishment that our sin deserved, we can look to him in faith and be saved. And friends, being saved, it makes us happy. 
But we can only be happy if we first acknowledge our spiritual poverty. We don't have anything with which we can purchase salvation for ourselves. So we've got to look in faith to Jesus who will gladly purchase it for us. And that's the first key to happiness. All right, beatitude number two is this. Secondly, Jesus says, uh, not only are those who are happy, who are humble, who humbly come before me acknowledging their spiritual poverty, but secondly, happy are the sad. Now that makes a lot of sense, right? (laughs) It's like a jumbo shrimp, you know, it's an oxymoron. Happy are the sad. But this is what Jesus teaches. Take a look at verse four. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus is not talking about, hey, happy are you if you're just sad in general. No, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus says, blessed are those who are mourned. And the idea is, blessed or happy are those who mourn over their sin. And we are happy when we mournfully repent of our sin because... Those who acknowledge their sin before God and ask for forgiveness receive the comfort that comes with knowing our sins are forgiven. And talk, I can't even help but talk about it without smiling. It literally makes you happy. I'm so glad that on judgment day, my sins, and they are many, will never be brought up because they have been punished on the cross of Jesus Christ. When I place my faith and my trust in Jesus to forgive me of my sins, God took all my sins and he retroactively put them on Jesus and they were punished on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago at Calvary, my sins. And for many of you, it was punished on that cross of Jesus. And since our sins have already been punished, we get to go free. And again, that just puts a smile on your face. You you get comfort from knowing your sins are forgiven. Comfort from knowing that on judgment day, you will never be punished for your sins because they were already punished in and through Christ. So do you see what Jesus is saying? Happy are the sad. You see, it's not enough to just merely acknowledge our spiritual poverty. That's not enough if we want to become a citizen uh, in the kingdom of heaven. In addition to acknowledging our spiritual poverty, the reality that we have nothing with which to purchase the salvation that we need, in addition to that, we have to acknowledge our sin. You can't just acknowledge your spiritual poverty. You have to acknowledge also that you're a sin in need of a Savior. No forgiveness comes to anyone who ignores the reality of their sinfulness. But when we humbly acknowledge both our spiritual poverty and our inerrant sinfulness, and we turn in trust and in faith to Jesus to forgive us, we become happy. We become justified. Jesus once told the story in Luke chapter 18 of two men who came to the temple desiring to be made right in God's sight and to find right standing with God. The one was a Pharisee and he approached God with great hubris. He he approached God proudly and arrogantly and he was just like, God, basically you're really lucky to have me. I mean, I tithe, I help old ladies cross the street. God, I'm amazing. I don't know if you know that. I know you're omniscient, but in case you don't know, I'm amazing. But then there was another man there at the temple and he came before God and he wouldn't even look his head up to heaven and he just said, God, and he beat his breast saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. And he mourned over his sin and Jesus says, it was the second man, not the Pharisee, it was the second man who went home justified. 
The word justified means it's just if I'd never sinned. And if we want that to be the case before God, that it would be just if I'd never sinned and just as if you'd never sinned, then we have to mournfully confess our sins to God. There's no way to make peace with God except through the acknowledgement of sin. But when we do, it makes us happy because we receive the comfort of knowing our sins are forgiven. All right, number three, the third beatitude is this. Jesus says not only are happy uh, the people who go ahead and confess their sins, but, but thirdly, happy are the meek. Happy are the meek. And we see this in verse five. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Friends, once we humbly acknowledge our spiritual poverty, and humbly acknowledge our sinfulness and that we're in need of a Savior, we are saved. And once saved, God desires to bring our lives under the lordship or control of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what meekness is all about. It's about coming in submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, in the time of Christ... The word meek was often used of an animal, a wild animal that had been tamed by its master, been tamed by its captor. And the animal, when it was wild, offered no useful service to its master. But once it had been tamed and once it had been brought under the control of its master, now it could take its master for its ride. Uh, now, it could now it could go ahead and plow uh, his master's field. Now this animal, who was worthless to the master before, uh, can now provide to the master all kinds of useful service. And friends, simply put, this is God's desire for us, that we would acknowledge our spiritual poverty, uh, acknowledge humbly our sinfulness, and that we are in need of a Savior. But once we do that and are saved, God wants us to bring us under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Today, I'm going to invite you to accept Christ like I do every single week. And what I'm going to invite you to do is to make Jesus Savior and Lord. Lord means he's king. Lord means he's ruler over your life. And friends, this is the only way to be truly happy, is to make Jesus Lord. So many people are flat out miserable in this life because their highest aim is not to be under the control and lordship of Christ. Their highest aim is to go ahead and do whatever they want. And they make life about pleasing themselves, not about pleasing God. They make life's goal to have others serve them. Their life goal is not so that they could serve the Lord Jesus. And that's why so many people are miserable. Now, friends, don't confuse meekness with weakness. A horse that has been tamed and brought under its master's control is just as powerful as it ever has been. But its strength and power brought under control. So when we come to faith in Christ, we're still us. We still have our personality. We still have our gifts. We still have our strengths. It's just all brought under the control and lordship of Christ. And when we surrender and submit to the lordship of Christ, it proves the genuineness of our faith. And that guarantees that we'll live forever in the kingdom of Christ. 
So when Jesus says, hey, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, understand, they shall inherit the earth, that just means they're going to live in the kingdom of Christ, which begins here on earth for 1,000 years and then continues forever in the new heavens, in the new earth. So being meek, being under the control of Jesus, that's just one of the many evidences of genuine saving faith. And when you have genuine saving faith, it's guaranteed that you'll live forever in the kingdom of Christ. Beatitude number four. Jesus says this, happy are the hungry. It's about lunchtime, so don't confuse what this really means. But happy are the hungry. Check out verse six where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. Friends, when you're hungry, you desire food. When you're thirsty, you desire water. And when you're saved in a Christian, you desire righteousness. That is, you desire to live as God requires, as is laid out plainly in the pages of Scripture. And this is just the natural consequence of being brought under God's control, like we just talked about in the last beatitude. The true believer, the true follower of Jesus, is consumed with a desire to live right and to do God's will. We see this in the life of Jesus in John chapter 4. His disciples go ahead and offer him some food after a long journey to Samaria. But Jesus responds to them saying this. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, my deepest hunger is to do right as defined by God the Father. I praise God that though I have so many shortcomings, all right, I am not a perfect man, far from it, but I praise the Lord that, that by God's grace, I have this desire to do right. Do you know what my most common prayer is? My mo the thing I pray the most often, hands down, is this. I, I pray, God, I just pray that you would grant me wisdom to love my wife, to teach my children, to lead New Day Church and to effectively reach the lost. And then I say, but God, one more thing. God, I want to hate what is evil and I want to love what is good. God, help me to hate sin. Help me to love righteousness. Help me to love holiness. I say, God, I want to be like Job who just shunned evil and was committed to doing what is good. And friends, even though none of us as followers of Jesus will ever do this perfectly on this side of eternity, you know you're genuinely saved when you can look on the inside and see a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for right living. It's one of the things that provides us assurance of salvation when we look inside and we say, I got a hunger to do what's right. If you're living in sin, you're not repenting of it, you're okay with it, you have no desire for holiness and you're cool with your sin, friends, on the authority of the word of God, you're not saved. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Satisfaction comes by hungering for this right living before God and by going ahead and fulfilling this right living before God. Jesus says when that's the case for you, you shall be satisfied. You'll never find happiness in doing whatever you want. You'll find happiness in doing what is right in God's 
eyes. It makes you happy. You're doing great. Number five. Number five. The fifth beatitude is this. Jesus says, happy are the merciful. Happy are the merciful. We see this in verse seven. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now the question begs, what does it mean to be merciful? What what does a merciful person look like? I think we see a great example of this in the Good Samaritan, who stopped on the roadside to help someone who was hurting. We see another great example of a merciful person in the example of Jesus, because in Mark chapter 10, he's going along the road, and uh, there's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus on the side of the road. And as Jesus walks by, Bartimaeus can't see him, but he hears Jesus coming with the crowds of people who were always with him. And when Bartimaeus learned that it was Jesus the Messiah who is coming down the road, he began crying out to Jesus. So he's blind, but he's got his voice. He can't see, but he's got vocal cords. And he just cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And even with the great crowds of people and all the noise they were no doubt making, there was no way to tune out the voice of this man. He was hurting. He was in need. He was blind. He had no means by which to support himself in his blindness. And Jesus has compassion on this man. The man said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus saw a need and he went ahead and met it. He saw this man's hurt and he went ahead and he healed it. And friends, that's what it means to be merciful. It means to show God's compassion to people who are in need. Now, it's more than a feeling, let me tell you. The Apostle James says this in his epistle. James says, if you look at people who are starving and, and, they're, and they're naked and they're thirsty and you just walk by and go, oh, I feel so bad for you. Be warm and well-fed and I hope you find some clothes. And then you just walk on your way. James says, what good is a faith like that? He says, you got to help the person. Don't just feel compassion. Let your compassion move you to action. You know, I've got a great example of this, sadly, not in my own life, all right, but I've seen a great example of merciful compassion uh, in my wife's life. She had gotten a bunch of money, okay, from her husband, all right, <laughs> for Christmas. I knew she wanted post-pregnancy clothing, and so in addition to other gifts, I gave her a good bit of cash there to work with to go ahead and, you know, get her some post pregnancy uh, clothing. And her goal was, I want to lose five pounds and then I'm going to go shopping. And she just had that money in her pocket and it was just about burning a hole in that pocket and she couldn't wait. And she was just about at that place where she was going to go and buy a bunch of clothes and all this kind of stuff. And here's the deal. War broke out between Russia and Ukraine. And she was like, almost as if like, you know, (laughs) is this okay with you? Because I know you gave this to me and whatever, but I want to give this to a Christian charity that's going to meet the practical needs of the people in Ukraine, this is a way higher priority to me than it is to go ahead and get clothes. Yeah, you can clap for her because I, I would have went and bought the clothes. I'm just telling you. You can clap for her though. I'm really truly married to a merciful woman. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. When you live out a life of compassion, meeting other people's needs on Christ's behalf, understanding that you are the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth, what that does is it shows God 
that you have genuine saving faith. And it's only those who have genuine saving faith who will receive God's mercy on judgment day. So we show mercy to others. That's the proof of the genuineness of our faith. And for those who have genuine saving faith, we will receive God's own mercy on judgment day. And that just makes us happy. Number six, moving right along. Jesus says, sixthly, happy are the holy. And we see this in verse eight, where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In other words, they're going to see God as they live with him forever in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Now, this beatitude makes us think of uh, the fourth beatitude about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And now we're talking about blessed are the pure in heart. And you say, Mike, isn't being pure in heart the same as being righteous and being holy? Uh, What's the difference? Is Jesus repeating himself? Well, the answer is no, not at all. When we're dealing with having a hunger and thirst for righteousness or right living, we're dealing primarily with external conformity to the law of God. But having started there with what is external, Jesus takes us deeper. And now he talks about being pure, not just in our external actions, but being pure in our heart. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought they were holy because they weren't committing the external acts that the law of Moses forbade. They weren't murdering anyone. They weren't committing adultery with anyone. They weren't lying to anyone. And they said, see, we have conformity to the external requirements of God's law. See how holy we are. And so Jesus, as you'll see in just a few weeks when we get there, Jesus says to them, yeah, you might not commit adultery on the outside, but you have lust in your heart. You're an adulterer of the heart. Yeah, you might not murder anyone on the outside, but you have anger and hatred in your heart, and that is murder of the heart. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's expanding our understanding of true holiness. It's not just about external conformity to God's law. It's just as much about having internal purity of heart. In other words, God cares about us having holy thoughts and us having holy attitudes and us having holy motives because true holiness is just as much about uh, holiness of heart as it is about external conformity to the laws of God. Now, when I think about uh, something that takes holiness uh, very serious and takes purity very serious, I can't help but think of a cute little critter called the ermine. Take a look. The ermine is a short-tailed weasel, one that I want if anyone's taking Christmas uh, requests ahead of time. All right, no. The ermine is a short-tailed weasel that has the unique feature of having its fur change to snow-white color in the winter. And the ermine instinctively protects his white coat against anything that will soil it. And in fur hunters in Northern Europe and in Asia, they take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. They don't set a snare to catch him. Instead, they just find his home, which is usually a cleft in a rock or a hollow in an old tree. And they smear the entrance with with grime, whether it be dirt or mud or muck, anything will do. And then the hunters set their dogs loose to find and chase the ermine. And the frightened little animal will flee towards its home. But when it gets there, it will not enter because of the filth. Rather than soil his white coat, he'd rather be trapped by the dogs. All the while preserving 
his purity. So for the ermine, purity is literally more precious than life. I think God created that little creature just to give us a perfect illustration of what he wants from us in terms of our desire to be pure and to be holy, not just externally, but internally before him. I found this very personally convicting. God takes holiness way more seriously than we do. But a genuine follower of Jesus is going to demonstrate, not perfectly, but is going to consistently demonstrate righteousness externally and internally in the heart. Now, why does being pure in heart make us happy? Well, Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But friends, when we demonstrate holiness, it again is just one of any number of evidences of genuine salvation. And when we demonstrate this holiness of heart, it proves we have genuine saving faith and guarantees that one day we will see God as we live with him forever in the kingdom of Christ. Okay, beatitude number seven is this. Jesus says, happy are the peacemakers. Verse nine says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, God the Father is at work in this world to save souls. When he sent Jesus, his son, Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. Nothing makes us look more like the sons or daughters of God than when we bear the family resemblance. I'll never forget being in the hospital when Andrew, our executive pastor, him and Christy, my sister, had their firstborn, little Ella. And I remember holding little Ella in the hospital. And it was so weird because I felt like I was holding Andrew as a baby. <laughs> Ella was Andrew's twin. She had red hair. She, she looked the same in the face. I was literally so freaked out about it and weirded out. I was like, here, take the baby back. This is weird for me. I feel like I'm holding Andrew. <laughs> but my point is this. Any true child will bear the family resemblance. Well, friends, God's at work in this world, seeking and saving the lost, and we never more bear the resemblance of our heavenly Father. We, it'll never be more true of us that we are sons or daughters of God than when we bear the family resemblance by working on this earth to reach lost souls for him. And that's what this beatitude is all about. Happy are the peacemakers. Friends, peacemakers are those who work on this earth to bring peace between sinful man and our holy God. This is literally the work that God has left us here on earth to do. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And the ministry of reconciliation, of course, is the ministry of helping two warring parties come to peace. We often forget that sinful man is God's enemy. Go look it up. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Romans chapter 5 verse 10, many other scriptures like it. Sinful man, apart from the forgiveness of sins of Jesus, is God's enemy. The Bible refers to sinful man as an object of God's wrath who will one day experience his fiery judgment. Just like Russia and Ukraine are mortal enemies right now, so God is enemies with sinful man. 
And that's why Jesus calls all of his disciples to be peacemakers on this earth. Peacemaking, yeah, oh, it includes if your friends are in an argument, you trying to help patch things up. Certainly, that's included in this. But the primary teaching here is that we would be peacemakers in terms of helping sinful man become at peace with our holy God. And this just makes us happy because when we work as peacemakers, we know that we bear the family resemblance and it provides such an assurance of salvation to know that we're truly children of God. All right, here's the final beatitude, number eight. Jesus says, finally, happy are the persecuted. And here we come to the next oxymoron in Jesus' teaching. First he said, happy are the sad, and now he says, happy are the persecuted. What's up with this? Well, let's first look and see where we got this point from, and then I'll explain We see happy are the persecuted in verses 10 to 12, where Jesus says, "Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, friends, this beatitude builds on the last. When you work as a peacemaker, your goal is to help sinners make peace with God. But before sinners can make peace with God, they have to understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And when the peacemaker uh, is faithful to the Word of God and helps people understand their sin, no matter how kind they are, no matter how tactful they are, sometimes it just doesn't matter how delicate of an approach you take, some people just don't like to be thought of as sinners. And that's why persecution often is the result of working on this earth as a peacemaker. You see, many people, they don't use God's standard of holiness which is God himself and his perfect holiness? No, most people say, I'm a good person and here's why. I saw the news the other week and I saw of a serial murderer and I saw of a rapist and I saw of a pedophile and uh, compared to them, I'm a pretty good person. And so many people take great offense when they're... uh, when they have it explained to them that they're sinners in need of a savior because many people don't view themselves that way. And so we see that persecution is often the result of our work as peacemakers in this earth because no one will ever be made right with God. Uh, Back to what was it, our second beatitude, I think. Uh, Blessed are those who, who mourn for they shall be comforted. You cannot get right with God without repentantly mourning over your sin. So that's why persecution comes. And Jesus says, you'll be happy when persecution comes, not because it comes, rather because when you remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution, great is your reward in heaven. So even when we're persecuted, made fun of, ostracized, uh, lied about because of our our, uh, witnessing uh, to lost people about our faith, We can literally smile in the middle of it, not because of the persecution, but because we know that there's a great reward for those who remain faithful in the midst of persecution. And again, what is that great reward? It's that we get to live forever in the eternal kingdom of Christ. 
that God has appointed Jesus to rule over forever. So friends, do you see the connection between the Beatitudes? I once, I once taught an eight-week series, spending one week on each Beatitude. But today I wanted to cover uh, all eight together to show you the flow of the Beatitudes, to show you the flow of Jesus' teaching. And what Jesus is really doing is he's painting a beautiful portrait of the Christian life. Hey, you want to be a true Christian? Then number one, acknowledge your spiritual poverty and then acknowledge your sin. When you do that, you'll be saved. But when you're saved, God the Father wants to bring you under the lordship and control of Jesus in a way that results with you being compassionate and showing mercy to others, in a way that results in you being holy on the outside and even in the thoughts and attitudes and motives of your heart, and in a way that causes you to work on this earth as a peacemaker to bring others to faith in the same Jesus who saved your soul. And in the midst of persecution, even then, you can be happy. Because your happiness as a believer, it's not based on circumstance. It's based on the reality that God saved your soul, that your sins will never be counted against you, and that forever you'll live and see God in the eternal kingdom of Christ. So friends, do you see the portrait? that Jesus has so masterfully uh, drawn and painted for us today in verses 1 to 12 of Matthew chapter 5. He's painted a portrait of a true Christian. He's painted a portrait of the Christian life. And it's this life and only this kind of life that truly makes us happy. So friends, you've got a decision before you today. You can try the world's way to find happiness or you can try, to try God's way. Those are really the only two choices. I mean, you can go the way of Solomon and experience the subsequent, uh, you know, depression, sadness, purposelessness, feelings of meaninglessness. You can have the despair and despondency. And I believe Solomon was straight up suicidal. I mean, when you read Ecclesiastes, like we did for months as a church a couple of years back, you just see, I think he was on the verge of suicide. He was so miserable. And that's because he searched for happiness in all the wrong places. Sounds like a country song, I know, but it's true. He searched for happiness in all the wrong places. And he was miserable as a result. Friends, I would implore you not to follow the example of Solomon. Rather, I'd implore you to learn a lesson from Solomon. So, so here's what this all comes down to for me. This all comes down to what is essentially a very simple choice. Here it is. Will you believe the world that God created or the God who created the world? Who are you going to believe about where true happiness comes from? Whose uh, philosophy uh, concerning how one finds happiness will you personally choose to follow? Don't go the way of Solomon, friends. Go the way of Jesus. He has come and he is one who is in greater wisdom than Solomon. And he says that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's just not where happiness is found. Happiness is found in making your peace with God and then giving your life in service to Jesus, his son. If you'd like to do that today, I want to invite you to join us in our closing prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, whether you're joining online or here in person, whether you're out in the foyer or wherever else you might be uh, listening to this teaching of Jesus on happiness. Normally, I provide a sample prayer. I'm not going to do that today. 
Today, I'm going to ask you to use your own words. So first, if you want to be happy, go ahead and make your peace with God. Go ahead and acknowledge in your own words to God your spiritual poverty. Just acknowledge that you have nothing with which you could purchase your salvation for yourself. And once you do that, go ahead and acknowledge next your sin. God, I don't want to be proud. I want to humble myself before you and acknowledge my sinfulness and my need for a Savior. And in your heart, just go ahead and look in faith to Jesus. Tell God that you're trusting Jesus to forgive you of your sins and that you're trusting Jesus to purchase the salvation you could never purchase on your own. And friends, if you've done that, I want to tell you on the authority of God's word that you are now saved. This leads us to the next part of the prayer. Now that you're saved, go ahead and pray for God's help in living the Christian life. Go ahead and ask God, help me to come under the Lordship of Christ. I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I also want him to be my Lord. God, help me to live in submission to his Lordship, to his kingship, to him being ruler over my life. And may I come under his control and live in submission in such a way that my life will be marked now moving forward by holiness. That my life moving forward will be marked by a compassion that moves me to action to help those in need. And God, may this uh, new life in Christ cause me to live on this earth as a peacemaker, helping others find the salvation only found in Christ. God, I can't do this on my own. So I'm humbly asking for your help. Supernaturally, supernaturally empower me to live out this kind of life because it's the only kind of life that will result in true happiness. God, I need your help. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.